This is the Education Gadfly Show. We're going with puns. I think he will, you know, he's certainly been crowned with a lot of authority. Nice, um, nice. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Kate McKinnon of Education Reform, Alyssa Schwank. Thank you, Mike. But does that make you the Hillary Clinton of Education Reform well, on this week's SNL? That's a good question. So Kate McKinnon, she plays Hillary Clinton on Saturday Night Live. They Very had that well fun skit together. I could be the Hillary Clinton. You know, Hillary Clinton is getting props by none other than Rick Hess. For for blasting away at Bernie Sanders' plan to make community college, quote, free, mm-hmm. uh, Hillary was saying, well, do you really think that Donald Trump's kids should get to go to college for free? I think that's a pretty good point. As an alum of all, the college that all of Donald Trump's kids went to, I can very much attest to it was not a free education there. Uh, but yes, nice but one. he could probably afford uh, to pay could. full freight, right? There you go. Okay. Hey, Alyssa, it's been a while since I've been on the show and it's been a while since you've been on the show. Me too. I hope we can handle this. Let's see. It might be rusty, but you know who it, it is not new to the show who's been on week after week after bloody week? Clara. Clara. Let's play. Pardon the gadfly, Clara. All right. Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan recently announced he will be stepping down in December. What kind of legacy will he will he leave behind? And what does this latest development mean for ESEA reauthorization? So well, let's talk about the legacy mm-hmm. first, Alyssa. Obviously, there's been a lot of pontificating on this. And, and mm-hmm. not surprisingly, uh, you can guess where people fall on the sort of in the education reform battle lines by by people's reactions. Mm-hmm. What, what's your take? I mean, I think he's definitely been one of the boldest secretaries of education that we've had, certainly between the waivers and his push for you know, getting Common Core in schools, his stances on teacher evaluations. He certainly hasn't been afraid to share uh, what he's thinking and to push for that. Yeah, I mean, he he is definitely a man of action and that has riled up conservatives. And look, I'm in that camp, uh, at least some of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think that he has crossed the line on some occasions in terms of the limits of federalism and also, frankly, the limits of the executive branch's authority. I mean, Mm -hmm. like I would argue the Obama administration writ large, uh, he has not been particularly concerned about these niceties of the uh you know, the, the division mm-hmm. between these branches. On the other hand, I understand that Democrats feel strongly that the Congress has not exactly been in a cooperative mood mm. either. So uh, this which leads us to our second point, which cuts both ways. So, yes. So now, uh, but, but, you know, and, and just on his legacy briefly though, uh, look, I, I do think that the education reform movement is uh, certainly stronger today than it was when he took office, right? There are more charter schools. The charter schools are better. Uh, states have higher standards. Uh, you know, Efforts to improve teacher quality uh, are stronger. Uh, he doesn't get credit for all of that. Uh, that's a team effort. And frankly, I think the fact that Republicans swept into office in many states in 2010 gets mm-hmm. a lot of credit for, for some of those changes at the state level. But, you know, on the whole, I would say we're in a better place today than we were when he took office in terms of education policy. So give him some credit for that. Uh, but on ESEA, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is this is yet another reason to believe ESEA reauthorization ain't going to happen. What's your take? I would put it slightly higher than it was earlier. Of course, I'm still not over the 50 percent threshold of it happening mm-hmm. before 2017. But I do think, you know, throughout the years, as Arnie's taken positions on various issues, he's 
garnered enemies from the right, from the left, and that's made it difficult to get ESEA through. Well, Whether it, or not it will still actually happen, that's a huge open and, question. And not just that. I mean, look, I think people like him on the Hill in terms of a person, but here's the deal. I have never believed that he and his team actually wanted a reauthorization bill. Why would they? He's got all the power right now. At least he has claimed all the power right. via these waivers that he added these, in my view, illegal conditions on top of. Any law that comes in is going to strip the Department of Education of much of its authority. It's going to send mm-hmm. that authority back to the states. Uh, even the Democrats are in favor of moving in that direction. The only debate is how far. And so I don't think Arnie's ever really wanted a bill. I know he has said he wanted one, but I think he only wanted one if it was one that that maintained his authority. Uh, And look, I think him leaving creates an opportunity. You say maybe now that he is leaving, we can turn the page and actually devolve significant power back to the states. Okay, Clara, topic (laughs) number two. What can we expect to see from his successor, John King? And, and Alyssa, when you answer this question, I want you to use various <laughs> puns of the name King. I mean, we, we have now a, a little more than a year to have a lot of fun with the last name King being our education secretary. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, I've only had two cups of coffee this morning, so the puns might be coming a little slowly. Um, if we're going with puns, I think he will, you know, he's certainly been crowned with a lot of authority. Nice, um, nice. And he will continue a lot of the policies of his successor. Um, Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay. Queen Elizabeth thing, but I like Talk, talking about his reign coming up. Look, yeah, I like John King a lot. Super smart guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, young. I don't think he's even turned 40 years old yet. He has already accomplished <laughs> an amazing amount. Uh, started a fantastic charter school in Boston, Roxbury mm-hmm. Prep. Uh, you know, did uh, did work, I believe, in Joel Klein's Department of yeah. Education, right? Uh, then state superintendent in New York. There, uh, he had a tough job selling really? the state's teachers on the really? Common Tell Core. Us more about that. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Shouted down uh, by mobs at at hearings and all sorts of things. Uh, you know, look, I, I think I, I like him a lot. Though you could argue he could have handled some of the New York uh, state stuff better than he did. We certainly have a full on Common Core and testing backlash there that we don't have in other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the situation in New York is certainly larger than one person. I think a lot of it has to do with the battles brewing between Cuomo and de Blasio. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think, though, that, you know, by the end of Arnie's tenure, the, you know, teachers unions were putting him on an improvement plan. I don't think they are going to be much happier with John Mm -hmm. King based on their previous uh, relationship, yeah. we'll call it, in yeah. New York. That That's fair. I think, and that's fair, and the press has gotten into that, that clearly the, the fight between the Obama administration and the unions will continue. The big question to me is where John King is on the federalism stuff. Is he going to have more respect for these limits, uh, more respect for the limits of the executive branch, more deference to Congress than, than Arne Duncan has shown? I don't have any reason to believe that's the case, but hey, again, it's a new leaf, a new time. Maybe he will. Yeah, I mean, he's had he now has the seven years of lessons that Arnie didn't have when he started simply yep. because they hadn't happened. I think we're going to see a huge continuation of the policies that have been in place. I don't think we're going to see anything too radically different. OK, Clara, topic number three. This past Monday marked the start of the 2015 Supreme Court term. What implications could a ruling on the Frederick space have for education? 
So this case, I think it's Friedrichs, uh, although I have not met the, the teacher herself behind this. <laughs> the issue in this case uh, is whether or not states can make it compulsory to make teachers pay these agency fees. This is if teachers don't want to join the union. They mm-hmm. have a constitutional right that's already been decided that they don't have to join a, a teacher union or other public sector employee union, uh, but they uh, they can be required uh, and 21 or 22 states Seven. require them uh, to pay these uh, agency fees, which basically are supposed to support all the non-political activity, uh, the teachers unions, uh, including collective bargaining. The mm-hmm. issue at this case is whether even those agency fees go a step too far in effect because they they support uh, political activity that collective bargaining in the public sector is inherently political. Right. I think the phrase non-political activity of a union is a slight oxymoron. Yeah. Um, a union is inherently a political body that represents its members. Its members in this case, case are adults um, and adults. When the needs of adults are coming against the needs of children, yeah. unions typically take the side of the adults. But again, let, let's be careful here, Alyssa, because in the mm-hmm. private sector, uh, you could argue that, you know, collective bargaining between uh, one set of adults and another set of adults, neither of which are elected and, you know, publicly, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's a totally different thing. The issue here is in the public, public sector, sector, right? Mm-hmm. That because uh, the unions play a role in many cases in electing the people they're bargaining with, and then because the bargaining itself is in effect public policy, right? right. It's, it's sort of advocacy in a different means. Uh, that That's the issue that's at play here. And so all these states could turn into right to work states, basically, mm-hmm. where teachers could choose not to join the unions. Uh, they all of a sudden will have a choice between paying what can sometimes be you know almost a thousand dollars in these agency fees or pay mm-hmm. nothing at all and so uh, what do you think Alyssa are, are unions going away I certainly don't think unions are going away permanently I do think that this case if it's decided in favor of the plaintiff is going to have huge implications on almost every issue of education reform well you so okay all right well let's push on that a little bit I, I certainly think that the, in the right to work states which tend to be the bluer states you're mm-hmm. going to see the teachers unions are going to lose a lot of members and they're going to lose a lot of money Mm-hmm. Right. And that is going to have an impact for sure right. on the politics around this issue and, and everything else. But, you know, it's not like in those non right to work states that the teacher unions or the teacher associations have no political power. Right. You look at a place like Alabama, for example, for a long time, mm-hmm. the NEA there still has remained incredibly powerful. Uh, so, you know, it, it's uh, you still have a huge number of members. You still have a lot of people out there who vote and who have family members who are teachers. I mean, this is still going to be a powerful political block. Yeah. I mean, I think it might. There's the debate over whether or not it's going to make it a leaner, meaner union or a weaker union. And I tend to split the difference on that Mm -hmm. one. Um, It's certainly a case to watch. There's a lot of education coming up in this year's Supreme Court term. So it's going to be a big year. That's right. We also got a a, uh, affirmative action case at the higher ed level. Okay, lots to watch. Thank you, Clara. That's all the time we've got for Pardon the Gadfly. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, David, pitch hitting here for Amber, who is, uh, where, where is Amber? She's somewhere important. Florida? Florida. I think she's in Florida. Presenting on something Conference. important, uh, which we can't remember well, at this everything point. everything we do is hugely that important. Is, that so. is true. So, no. So, Amber cannot be here, but David Griffith, pinch hitting. And what you got to talk about today, David? 
Uh, well, Mike, I have uh, an exciting study, um, which is entitled uh, A New Measure of College Quality uh, to Study the Effects of College Sector and Peers on Degree and Attainment. It is an exciting study. I, I can't say much for the title there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so the authors of the study are Jonathan Smith uh, and Kevin Stange um, from the University of Michigan. So go blue. Uh, yep. Uh, in the study, the authors use PSAT scores from 2004 and 2005. Uh, enrollment and completion data from the National Student Clearinghouse uh, and IPEDS data. And basically, they use these data sources to track the progress of about 3 million students uh, over time as they, <laughs> Is that enter, all they had? <laughs> as they enter and complete college. Um, so uh, it's the first uh, study to really attempt to uh, capture the contributions of peer effects um, to community college outcomes. Um, and it's also the first to try to quantify the role of uh, these peer effects in explaining um, the difference between bachelor degree attainment um, in traditional colleges um, at four-year and two-year uh, institutions. Um, so it's an interesting study. Uh, so consistent with previous studies, uh, the authors find that recent high school graduates uh, who start at four-year colleges are 50 percentage points more likely to earn a bachelor's degree within six years than those starting at two-year colleges. So this difference obviously has a number of possible explanations. Um, one is self-selection. Uh, it could just be that better students go to start at four-year colleges. Um, another is uh, sort of the transfer costs associated with moving from a two-year institution to a four-year institution. There's barriers um, that we all know about. Um, and then finally, peer effects. Uh, and broadly, I think the results of the study suggest that all three of these factors uh, play a pretty important role. So. Uh, the main finding, the central finding, is that according to the authors, um, about 40% of the bachelor's degree attainment gap between two- and four-year colleges can be explained by average peer quality. In other words, um, it's a major factor in explaining why uh, some uh, why students who start at two-year colleges um, may be less likely to wind up getting a four-year degree. Um, and uh, a student's own ability, uh, another interesting finding is that a student's own ability is more important uh, in the two-year sector, while peer ability is more important in the four-year sector. Hmm. Um, and, uh, but even comparing students with the same test scores um, and who have similar peers, um, they still find that there's, there's a big gap between um, those who start at two-year institutions and those who start at four-year institutions, um, which sort of suggests that there, there are some other major structural factors here. Um, such as barriers um, to transferring between institutions. Um, so the study obviously has important implications. Um, so, uh, for example, um, it really suggests that the quality of two-year colleges, um, which is an understudied uh, topic, uh, as measured by average PSAT scores, matters. So, you know, if you're if you're a student out there, it might actually be worth looking around a bit um, instead of you know attending the nearest community college, as as many students wind up doing. Um, and, and then it also has some important implications for policymakers. Um, so first of all, um, it, it's possible that in incentivizing um, two-year uh, college enrollment um, through things like free community college, um, we might inadvertently lower some students' chances of receiving a bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. uh, although it's, it's tough to prove that or totally conclude that from this study. And then the other uh, related implication is that um, you know any accountability measures that focus on the performance of these sorts of um, uh, uh, outcomes um, may may wind up uh, incentivizing uh, these two-year institutions to focus on things they can control. 
Um, so it may inadvertently discourage them from focusing on bachelor's degrees. Mm-hmm. So I know there's a lot there, but hopefully yeah. we can unpack it. So, and, and let's talk a little bit, Alyssa and David, about the, the implications for K-12. You know, one is for high school counselors and teachers, you know, is to encourage, it, it's to say, look, there's a strong reason to encourage kids to go to four-year Mm -hmm. four year programs, Um, you know, though, uh, you know, if they're more expensive, that's a little bit of a tough call. Right. right? But we do worry about particularly low income kids undermatching that they end up going to, say, a community college when they could get into a selective four year institution where they would probably do a lot better. The other one for me is, man, what would happen if these community colleges would at least be a little bit selective? Right. I mean, it seems like part of the problem here is, you know, there are these open access institutions. Mm -hmm. You got all these kids coming in who are not actually ready for college. They get, you know, stuck in remedial education. But it also just drags down the quality of the peers at those institutions. If you had some standards there, uh, you know, maybe you would have a better teaching and learning environment at these community colleges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I would disagree a little bit. I do think that one of the roles of the community college is to be open to everyone. And that's certainly something that. As someone who grew up where the only college nearby was a community college, like that's a value that I uh, even people who can't you know read and do math at the sixth grade level. Well, most of the people going there were from my school district, and it was troubled, but not that troubled. Um, but it was definitely a place where people could go if they didn't have other options. They didn't really have another path. They didn't know what exactly they wanted to do. And I think mm-hmm. that's an important role that the community college does play. But I do agree that something that the study does raise is the value of preparedness and ensuring Mm -hmm. that when kids exit the K-12 system, Mm -hmm. they are ready, whether that's for a two-year program with the intention of transferring, a two-year program with the intention of earning an associate's or certificate, or to go straight into that four-year degree program. That's uh, that's fine. It's all fine and good, Alyssa, but we're talking about Mm -hmm. 40% right now of kids who graduate college ready. Okay. So that means, and and, and almost, you know, 80% of kids going to college. So we're talking about a lot of kids right now going, especially to community colleges who are not ready. I'm just saying, if we want to improve what happens on community colleges, uh, you know, having some some kind of a floor that says, look, obviously this is a place we, we want to help kids get over that bar. We want to help them get ready. But, you know, maybe it's saying you got to at least be at an eighth grade level. Mm-hmm. But if you're at a sixth grade level, I'm sorry, this is not a good place for you. But then I, where do those kids go? Well, they go into the workforce. And uh, and that's just, and that is why we have to do a much better job in K-12 education, mm-hmm. getting kids college ready. So there you have it, David. Thank you. That's a fascinating thing. I'm not and, touching and, that one. <laughs> and uh, David's been very quiet on that, uh, wisely so. Totally and so. hey, uh, one cool thing is the peer effects research. Uh, you know, this is something that you start to see more in K-12 as well. Uh, always wondering when we look at impacts, if we're talking about charter schools or diverse mm-hmm. schools or voucher schools or anything, is it because of what's happening in the schools uh, in terms of their instruction, their teachers, or mm-hmm. is it simply the peers? And we certainly know that, uh, look, parent, parents understand when it comes to college, they try to send their kids to a college mm-hmm. that has, you know, as smart a peers as possible. A lot of kids, a lot of parents send their kids to private schools for that same reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, some argument that that's happening in charter schools as well. Uh, I, I'm willing to defend that. We just have to be clear about what we're studying and what we're explaining and understand that, you know, if peer effects matter, uh, you know, then then you've got sort of high achieving peers are not equally distributed uh, in our schools and colleges. Right. Yeah, I'll just close with with one thought that shouldn't be controversial, which is that one one thing I did take away from the study was uh, just that we have to we have to stop talking about community colleges um, in these blanket terms as mm-hmm. though they're all the same. Um, and uh, you know, in fact, there, there are big differences. There's big differences in terms of the peers um, that you will find at a community college. Um, so if you're a student out there 
Um, regardless of how you feel about the issues we've been discussing today, it's worth uh, shopping around um, and paying some attention to mm-hmm. to who you're going to college with. For so. all of the high schoolers that listen to this podcast. Absolutely. Yes. Hey, yeah. I am glad that I have peers like you. You guys make <laughs> me smarter. I know that's the case. Okay, that's all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwenk. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C., For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.